Hey, if you are in person or if you are online, uh, my name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so grateful that you're with us today. So grateful to see you in, in the house. Man, wasn't that powerful? Um, good night. I think we, let's just do that again uh, next week, and then the next week after that, and then the next week after that. Um, that, was, that was awesome. Um, hey, just out of curiosity, you ever been uh, driving in a neighborhood before? You ever been driving in a neighborhood and, and got lost and couldn't find your way out? You know, one of those kinds of neighborhoods? Um, just a couple weeks ago, my wife and, and I, our family, we were visiting some friends and we were in a neighborhood in town and um for the life of us we couldn't figure out how to get out <laughs> we couldn't figure out how to get out of there i mean seriously and we were too stubborn for google maps um a little too stu- you know it was, it was a little bit inconvenient we 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 here's what here's what happened um we 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 went in and we thought that we'd be able to figure out on our own um the way, the way to get out um, but the reality is, is what, what happened is we just kept making turns and turns and turns and we actually got nowhere. Um, you know that sometimes life is like that? Um, some, sometimes life is like that where we find ourselves in situations where it, regardless of the turns that we make, regardless of the changes that we make, sometimes it just seems like we can't get out. We're in this series that we just started last week, a teaching series called How to Break the Cycle. How to Break the Cycle. And we're looking at this Old Testament book of Judges and the people of God who seem to, for the life of them, cannot get out of the situation that they are in. And regardless of what they're doing, it seems like they can't get out. You know, we face cycles in our own lives that are oftentimes debilitating or oftentimes destructive, and they're not only destructive just to us, they're also destructive to the people that are around us. So if you're online today, if you're in the room today, I know that for many of us, we struggle with cycles like anger, cycles of anxiety, cycles of shame, or cycles of negativity, or addiction, cycles of control. What about overspending? Anybody have a problem with that one? Overspending, overeating, overworking. It's like, sign me up for all three of those. Um, or even undervaluing, cycles of underloving and underserving ourselves and those around us. And it's not necessarily easy. I don't want to give off the impression that it's easy to break the cycles that are in our lives, but I want you to know today that it's possible. How about this? Do this with me. I thought about this this morning. Whatever it is, that cycle that you're facing, the thing that you're going through, imagine a world, imagine a future where that cycle doesn't exist in your life. Envision a world, envision a family, envision a relationship, envision a job, envision a situation where that is not any longer your cycle. And I need you to hear today is that every person under the sound of my voice has the ability to break the cycle. Everybody does. Everybody can. Um, Everybody, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how old or how young or black or white or Hispanic or Asian or whatever, whatever your past is, whatever your background is, whatever your thing is that you're going through, we all can break the cycle and we can get out of the cycle. And so today I hope to help you to begin making progress as we try to break um, the cycle. Here's a title for today if you're taking notes. Here's a title, Making Progress. Making progress. And in the book of Judges, what we seem to see is that they begin to make progress. But here's the reality. This is the best that it gets in the book of Judges. After today, it only gets worse. It's already worse. 
It just continues to get worse uh, over and over again. But we seem to see like they begin to make some progress. So today, I want to try to help you to begin to make some progress. And I honestly only have one main thought um, that we'll get to after the text. We're going to walk through chapters 3 and chapters 4. I'm going to mention a couple things in chapters, chapter 5 today. But we're going to look at three of the judges, three of these deliverers um, in these couple chapters. And then I hope to make one big main application to help us understand how to break the cycle. As well, um, tomorrow is our first equip session that we're doing. And so um, Hillary and I tag are going to tag team this one. And we're doing this equip session. We're going to be doing a several of them throughout the course of the series. Um, it's going to be available on YouTube and the podcast tomorrow. And it is how to understand the role of women in ministry. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, Deborah. Um, we're going to be looking at, at her life and how God used her. And so it all oftentimes brings up the questions about you know, what does this look like for women in ministry? And unfortunately, there's some confusion there. And so we figured we would try to help you out with that. Amen. Amen. All right, Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, and on the heels of last week, um, God's people uh, still find themselves in destructive cycles. Look in chapter 5, beginning, um, sorry, chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Actually, it says this. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites. They lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites. Um, do you have any ites in your life, by the way? They were living among these people, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Um, they, remember, were not supposed to li be living among any of these people. They are in the promised land, and they hadn't possessed the promise yet. And God said, you got to get them out. There's some things you got to get out. There's some things you got to get out. There's some things that you got to get out. There's some things that you got to get out. And rather than get it out of their lives, they decide that they would just cozy up to it. They might as well even make a bed together. It's, it says this, verse 6, And their daughters took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters get, they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Verse 7, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You're going to see this phrase mentioned seven times in the book of Judges, three times in just the two chapters that we're going to be in. Seven times it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil in the sight of the, of the Lord. They deviated from God's design and destiny for their lives. That's what sin is. Sin isn't that you just made a bad decision or you did something bad. Sin is ultimately a deviation from God's destiny in your life. And they chose to uh, practice and allow and operate in evil, even in the sight of the Lord. And then it says this, they forgot. Somebody say forgot. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, which is an interesting way to say that. It's like, did they have, have a head injury or something? Like, how did, they, how, did they, how did they forget? I mean, surely they didn't just intellectually forget that there was a God. What exactly does that mean? And we're going to get to that in just a little while. And so what we see is the people of God assimilating into the culture of the world. And rather than being the unique, distinct people of God, they decided to act like the world and be like the world and live like the world, which is our struggle as well, isn't it? It's our struggle um, as well. And the people forgot God. And then the result, which is always the case, was destruction and demise and distress for the people because you can't forget God and expect his favor. It doesn't work that way. And so they 
incurred, they reaped the consequences of their actions, which were destruction and demise. Now here we're going to do the three judges that are found in chapters three and four. Let's start with the first one who is a guy named Othniel. It says this in chapter three, verse nine. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they were so stinking tired of their distress. They finally cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, and the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And this is what's true of, of, of all the judges, of all these deliverers. Judges were, weren't, weren't courtroom judges. They were really like um, deliverers or they were like government um, kind of civil military leaders. What we'll see is every single one of them, the spirit of God was on them that accomplished the work that they um, tried to do. It says, and he judged Israel and he went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, or however you say that, king of Mesopotamia into his hand. And I went to seminary, but I ain't got that one down. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Risha, Thame. So the land had rest. Get this. The land had rest for 40 years. 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Here's the cycle that we see in Othniel. Just a quick, short story, but here's the cycle. We see sin, which was deviation from God's design and God's destiny. And then we see they reaped devastation and they reaped distress and demise. Then we also see there is repentance where they cry out to God. They cry back out to God for deliverance and for salvation. God comes and delivers, which is good news, by the way. Even as stinking horrible as these people were, God still loved them because of his covenant faithfulness and still delivered them even in all of their sin and their distress. God rose up a deliverer, delivered them, and then they experienced peace. And sometimes those seasons of peace and, sh and shalom and harmony were for decades and decades and decades. But then here's what's happened. Here, here's, here's the next one. The next judge is a guy named Ehud. What a great name, by the way, Ehud. Here's verse 12. Look with me at this. This is the next one. And Ehud and Deborah, they're the two unconventional judges in the entire list. The first one, Ehud. And the people of Israel, again, 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 thought we were over that, thought we were past that. Again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, who's the enemy. God actually strengthens Eglon, the enemy, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites. He got his own ites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which was Jericho. Remember Jericho. Remember they walked around the walls. Seven times, blue trumpets, the walls fell down. It was amazing. Revival happened. And then they're back in the same stinking situation. And now the enemy's got Jericho. He takes over the city of Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. 18 years because of their decisions. 18. Some of you have been walking through something for 18 years and still haven't broken the cycle. If you do not break the cycle, you will remain in it until you do. 18 years they're in this. And then verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here it goes again. They cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Thank you for that uh, interesting detail. The point of Israel, or, or the people of Israel rather, sent tribute, which is a gift, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So let me break this one down for you. Um, Ehud is an interesting 
judge or deliverer in, in the entire list. He and Deborah are the unconventional of all the others. Um, first of all, Ehud, it says that he was a left-handed man, which why do we need to know that information? Well, it comes out a little bit later in the story if you would read along. Um, but what's interesting about um, um, Ehud with left-handed man, most warriors in their day were right-handed. It was kind of like par for the course. If you were going to be a warrior, you're going to be right-handed. You would fight with your sword in your right hand. You would sheathe your sword on your left side, and it was very obvious who were the warriors among us, okay? They wore it proudly, wore it on their left side, big sword right here. They mean business. Um, everybody, it was kind of like a policeman's badge. I mean, it was like visible. Everybody knew that they had it. Well, Ehud, he was a warrior, but he was left-handed. Um, commentators say that he was uh, either paralyzed or had some kind of physical um, disability with his right hand, and so he learned how to be a warrior with his left hand. This gave him a unique, distinct advantage. And rather than fight with a huge long sword, Ehud had a short little sword. I think it says it was about 18 inches long or so. And he could sheathe his small sword on his right hand side under his garments and no one would see it. And if he has a paralyzation of his right hand, everybody thinks this guy's a joke. Okay, he's harmless. Don't even think about the guy. No big problem. Well, the people of Israel are so tired of, of Eglon, the king of Moab, they send Ehud and they say, we're going to give a gift to the king. They're really tricky on this one. They're really tricky. They said, we're going to give a gift um, to uh, King Eglon through Ehud. He won't know that he's a warrior. And then Ehud's going to take him out. It's going to be amazing. So here's what happens. Ehud gets to the king's palace. They bring, the, they bring them in. Ehud says, oh, king, we've got an amazing a gift for you that we want to give you as a tribute. And so they actually give it to him. And everybody, it's a great big party. And everybody thinks Ehud's just a normal, ordinary guy. And it's so fun. And everybody's having a good time. They leave the, the king's quarters. And just as everybody's leaving, Ehud turns around. And he says, hey, king, by the way, he says, um, uh, God gave me a word for you that I would love to give to you if you just have, if I could just have a moment of your time. And the king's like, you know, who is this Ehud guy? Whatever, you know, like, sure. sure. And so Ehud goes in, says, I'd love to, uh, the king says, I'd love to hear what you have to say. And um, the text says, the scripture says he was a very large man. It literally says that the king was a very large man. Um, Ehud goes up close to the king to whisper the word of the Lord. And Ehud uh, whips off his, his, his garment. He pulls out his sword and he stabs the king. I mean, literally in the king's quarters, um, in, in, his, in his quarters. And he's such a large man, it says that he couldn't get his sword out. And this is, I'm not making this stuff up, y'all. This is the Bible, okay? This is the, and the Bible actually says that when he stabbed the king, that the word that the ESV uses is dung and came out of him. I will let you figure out what that means. Um, but that's actually what, what happens. And here's, here's Ehud's a tricky guy. He goes back up to the king's doors. He locks the doors in his quarters. And then he goes out the back on the roof, jumps out and escapes and goes back to his people. It literally says that the king's assistants come back to the king's quarters. They smell something a little raunchy. And so they figure the king is doing some business. It says that they leave and come back later. And this, the king still hasn't come out. And so they finally break down the doors and they see that the king is dead on the floor. And they realize that Ehud is a bad man. And Ehud has actually uh, killed the king. He would go to get his people and they would defeat the Moabites and they would have victory. It's a crazy, it's a crazy story. So, the, so that, that's Ehud. Now here's, here's, here's the next one. Not only Ehud, if that wasn't interesting enough, now Deborah. All right, here we go. Deborah, chapter four. Chapter four, and you're like, are there gonna be any like points in this? Or like, what are we doing? Here we go, chapter four. I'll, we'll get to it. Chapter four, it says this, verse one. And the people of Israel, again, for crying out loud, again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, another one who reigned in Hazar. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived among Herosh, 
Herosheth Hagoim. Uh, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. They cried out again, for he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Oppression, cruel oppression, cruel oppression of God's people. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was judging Israel at that time. Now here's the third one of our list for today, which is Deborah. She, like Ehud, is unconventional in the list of judges in that she's the only female judge of the entire list. And she is actually, um, she's bad, y'all. She's, she's, she's pretty amazing. Um, the, the commentators would say she is most likely the most godly representative of all the judges. I mean, she is amazing. It says in chapter five, in the song of Deborah and Barak, it says that she is a mother in Israel. And so she, we need to recognize, is a leader of God's people. She's a civil leader. Um, she's leading God's people. She's also a prophetess. A prophet is someone that has an ear to God and a mouth to the people. Hears from God and then speaks the truth of God to the people. And this is what she's doing. The text says in chapter 4 that she is, um, she's governing and she's helping um, with various civil disputes and things that are happening among the people of Israel. And she is just, she's just laying it straight and she's speaking truth and she's, she's dropping it. Anybody got any women in their life like that, by the way? Anybody got any women like that in, in your life? I've got a few, praise God. Um, praise God. It sounds like all the women in my, in my life, if I'm going to be honest, are like that. And, and here's, here's what we need to recognize. She's a leader. She's a leader of God's people. She's actually a kind of a military general in some senses. She actually orders Barak um, to accomplish, uh, the, uh, to, to fight in, in the war. She's She's really, um, she's really significant in, in this list. Now, here's what's, what happens with, with Deborah. She comes to um, Sisera, is, 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 he's, he's cruelly oppressing God's people. And so Deborah calls a Barak, who is um, this military general, and she says, we're going to go win. We're going to accomplish victory. God's going to send us, and we're going to accomplish victory today. And Barak is a little bit skittish. He's like, are you sure about that? I mean, are you seeing that? 900 chariots of iron. You remember that guy? That guy. We're, and she says, we're going to win. We're going to win. He's a little bit, he's a little bit um, iffy. And so she says, she speaks the truth from God into his life, and she says, because of this whole situation. Um, God's not going to deliver Sisera into your hand, but into the hand of a woman. And he's like, excuse me? Like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the military general here. Now, God's going to deliver Sisera into the hand of a woman. So here's what happens. Based on chapter five, um, what we see is that this huge storm, this rain cloud happens, which is crazy in the middle of the desert. It's in this river valley. And what most likely happens is that all the chariots of fire uh, chariots of fire, chariots of iron, uh, um, different, different story. Sorry about that one. Um, <laughs> all the chariots of iron are rendered uh, useless uh, because they're all bogged down in this river basin. And so God's people, actually, the Israelites actually defeat um, uh, Sisera and, and, the, and the, whoever they are. Uh, I get them all mixed up at this point, but they win. Um, Sisera, though, is a little bit of a coward. He runs off. He, he, he gets off of his chariot and he starts hightailing. He's like, I'm, I'm out of this situation. It's not looking good. So he starts running for his life, literally um, in the middle of nowhere. Well, as he's running for his life, he remembers that there's a guy named Heber um, who used to be like on his team back in the day before Heber left and started his own thing. And Heber has got this wife named Jael, and he comes up to their tent in the middle of nowhere, and he's like, Heb, what's up, bro? You remember me? That's the message translation, by the way. That's what he says. That's what he says. 
he, he shows up, he, sh- he shows up, and, and, and Heber's like, oh, Sisera, I remember you from back in the day, and they think, they think they're like bros and stuff, and he's like, come on in the tent. He doesn't recognize, though, that Jael, his wife, is bad to the bone, all right? And so, um, literally, um, they're not on his team anymore, but they don't tell Sisera that. Sisera comes in. He's so exhausted. He's so tired. Um, they make him some, some food. They, she lies him down, says, you need to get some rest. You need to get some sleep. He's like, can I please get some water? She brings him more milk. I mean, amazing. She brings him milk. The guy is asleep. I mean, he is out cold. And then here's what happens. Look in chapter 4, verse 21. It says this. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Would you? Thankful for that last sentence because I was confused, you know, on what the outcome of that situation was. Um, Jael, I mean, she's, she's, she's bad to the bone. I imagine she walks out of the, the tent and she says, nailed it. I think that's what she, she said. I imagine that's what I would do if I was in that situation. And so here's these, here's these three stories. Here's these three stories. Othniel, you like that, Christina, didn't you? Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah. It's okay to have fun in church, y'all, okay? Some of y'all in the, some of y'all in the back, you need to lighten up a little bit, okay? Let's laugh a little bit. This, we can have... We can have a good time. We can have a good time in church. So Othniel, Ehud, and uh, Deborah. And so here's, here's what I want to do. I really want to really hammer something home for you. Um, and I really think, I really think we, just, we just need to drive a stake in the ground on what we are seeing in the text uh, um, today. So, so here's what I'm going to do. I got one main thing that I want to use the rest of my time for. But um, before I do that, let me just take the opportunity uh, to honor some women in the house, you know? Let's take a moment and honor some women. Um, it is um, so good that so many women, for so many generations, for so many, for, for the legacy of the church, have always done great ministry for the Lord. Amen? Um, it is, and if I look at the bridge, and if I think about the bridge, and I think about the women that God has brought us here, the women that God has sent from here, the, the women that God has sent on church plants, the women that God has sent internationally in foreign missions. I mean, so many, so many women that are doing amazing work. Hillary, I mean, I just honor you today, and I champion you for all that you do for um, our church. Um, earlier in, in the in the, nine, in the nine o'clock worship, God, I honored my wife who, who was here this morning during the nine o'clock, and she doesn't get paid a dime, but y'all, she does some ministry. Let me, let me tell you. I mean, she does, she does a lot. And I mean, the women that are on our staff, um, women community group leaders, uh, deacons, I mean, you, you just name it. And it's so beautiful because even when you look at the scripture, you look at the life of Jesus, I mean, Jesus was always had these women that were doing great ministry, were opening up their homes to, for the church and different things. The apostle Paul, his posse were so many women that were around. He and the other apostles doing amazing ministry. Uh, it's, just so, um, it's just so good. And so we need to, we need to celebrate um, the women at the bridge. And we love you. We see you. We need you. We're behind you. We champion you. We honor you. And we hope to be a part of God's process of seeing you step into all that God has for you. Can I get an amen in the house? Amen. 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 So here's what we're going to do. This, this whole situation this, these whole couple chapters, the reason that they are in this situation, the reason that they are in the cycles that they are in is because of some bad decisions that are being manifest from something that's actually deeper inside of 
them. They're making bad decisions, and the reality and the outcome is that their life um, isn't everything that it should be. Can I just um, say today as well that um, before I get too far into to that, that life isn't easy. You know, I mean, life isn't easy, if we're going to be honest. Trying to keep your financial affairs in order, trying to keep your home affairs in order, trying to, trying to keep relationships that, that are healthy, that aren't toxic, trying to, trying to keep your body in shape and, and in good health, trying to have working relationships that are, that are healthy. I mean, I have this conversation with, with Hillary and Pastor Chris all the time that it's like a never-ending um, struggle to really make sure that the, health, that the culture is, is healthy because you take your hands off the wheel for just one second, that thing's going to jackknife into the ditch. And so, so it is with so much of our life that it just isn't um, easy in finances, relationship, work, I mean, everything. And we have to recognize that in every day we're making decisions that are producing the outcomes of our life. Every day we're making probably dozens, if not hundreds of decisions that are producing the outcomes in our lives. And so therefore we have to, we need to be making good decisions, but, but, but how do you make good decisions? You know, I know I need to make good decisions, Pastor Ethan, but the problem is it's a hard thing to do. And it's decisions that are ultimately that are producing the outcomes in your life. I've heard it said this way. It's decisions, not intentions that determine your destiny. It's decisions. It doesn't matter how good your intentions are. And I think most of us probably have good intentions. I don't think most of us walk into the room today trying to figure out how you can wreck your life. I don't think most of us walk into the room trying to figure out how to get stuck in a cycle. I don't think the average person is trying to get addicted, trying to be enslaved to work, trying to ruin their marriage. But the reality is, is that you can have the greatest intentions in the world, but intentions don't shape your life. Decisions do. Decisions do. And what happens is that we allow ourselves to make small little decisions that are small minor deviations from our ultimate goal, which then get us into situations that we never wanted to be in in the first, in the first place. You know you should be faithful to your spouse, but you allow yourself to have one little harmless online conversation that then turns into something emotional. One little this, one little that, and before you know it, your life is in a cycle that you never intended to be in in the first place. Why didn't they make good decisions? Why didn't they make great decisions, and why did they end up in cycles? I think that we actually see one of the reasons why in Judges chapter 3, verse 7. I'll put it on the screen for you, what we read earlier. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot. They forgot. What I'd like to do is I'd like to teach you the principle of spiritual forgetfulness. Spiritual forgetfulness. They forgot their Lord, their God, and they served other things. We see this concept actually um, all throughout the Bible, spiritual forgetfulness, or you could even call it spiritual remembering, Old Testament, New Testament. You see this all over the place. You even see the relationship between God and his people, that this is language that's often used, where God would say, forget not my commands. You would say thing, you would see things where the people would say, forget not your love for me, where this idea of this forgetting um, is used through, throughout the scriptures. But here's, here's what's interesting, is that um, when the author 
uses this, and when we see this word in the Bible, it's not primarily talking about an intellectual memory capacity. It's not like they all of a sudden they're like, there's a God? What? There's a... It wasn't like they had a head injury or something and all of a sudden they forgot their memory and they like, oh, I didn't know there was a God. I didn't understand that there was a God. Spiritual forgetfulness isn't about literal loss of knowledge or literal loss of memory. Rather, it's not talking about memory. It's primarily talking about mindfulness. It's talking about mindfulness. And so spiritual remembrance is actual spiritual mindfulness. And so here's what spiritual forgetfulness is. It's, it's not like, these are the people of God. These are the Israelites. They've been delivered from Egypt. It wasn't like they forgot about Egypt. Oh, I totally forgot about that. It wasn't like they forgot about the 10 plagues. I mean, the most epic thing ever. I mean, it wasn't like they forgot about crossing the Red Sea and what God did in, in, in that. It wasn't like, it, they didn't forget about in the wilderness where water came out of the rock or manna came down from heaven. It wasn't that they intellectually forgot about things. It was that those things no longer controlled the way that they operated and, and acted. Spiritual forgetfulness is when we choose to no longer be controlled by what we know. And so it wasn't that they didn't remember it. It was really that they failed to allow that narrative to continue to control their mind and their heart. It's kind of like when um, you, you, anybody ever lose your keys in the house? Um, you're trying to get out the door. Um, and it's usually, usually it's just, usually it's primarily one spouse and not the other. Anybody notice that in your, in your family? Let's not point any fingers, but... Um, um, you know, no, you know, you know, you're trying, you're trying to get out the door. You're trying to find your keys, and you're like, oh, I, 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 for, I forget, I forget where I forget where my key, where my keys are. Well, in that moment, um, somebody says every day. Um, in that moment, it, it's not that you forgot about keys. It, it's not like, remind me, how do we drive a car again? How does it work? Keys. Keys, okay, okay, keys. It's not that you forgot. It's that in the moment of entering your home, wherever you set your keys down, your mind was actually consumed with something other than where you put your keys down. That's, that's, what, that's what happened. All right, and so I'm terrible about this, and so I have a process. I walk into the door. Before I talk to Luna the dog, I say, stay seated, stay seated. Before I give anybody hugs and kisses, right back pocket wallet on the shelf, Left front pocket keys, two sets. One is the truck keys, and then one is the other, everything else keys. Set the keys um, on there. Sunglasses go on the shelf. Pin comes out of the left pocket right there. Watch comes off the left wrist, and now I'm ready to go, okay? And if I don't do that, if I don't do that, I'll never make it here on Sundays, okay? That's like if I don't do that, okay? I know myself well enough that that's what I, what I have to do. It's not that when you forget your keys, you don't know about keys, it's that your mind was actually consumed with something other than your keys at that moment. Spiritual forgetfulness works in the same way. It's not that we forget about the things of God. It's not like, oh, I totally forgot that there was a Trinity, that there was a God. I totally forgot. It's, not, it's that, that we begin to live and operate in such a way where our hearts and our minds are consumed by something other than the narrative and the reality of who God is. And, and the thing is, is that we struggle with spiritual forgetfulness as well. It's easy for us to point fingers at the Israelites and look at these wicked, awful people when, when, we, when we do the exact same thing. And spiritual forgetfulness, it's, it's when we know something with our heads, but not really with our hearts. 
We can even acknowledge that something is true, but in our hearts, it doesn't actually grab us or control us. And one of the things about the Israelites is that they turned to God for relief, but they didn't turn to God for relationship. See, religion is when you just want the things of God, but you don't actually want God himself. You just want to jump through the hoops. You want to check the boxes. You want to do whatever your grandma wants you to do in order for you to make you feel like you're a spiritual person, but you don't actually want God. That's what religion is. Relationship is actually desiring God regardless of what I get in return. Where God is the end, he's not the means to the end. God is the goal. God is ultimate. And the people of Israel, they, they just wanted relief. They didn't actually want relationship. And so therefore, they didn't have a mindset. They didn't have their minds set on the things of God and what God wanted them to do. And so the remedy to reverse spiritual forgetfulness or spiritual mindlessness is renewal of the mind and renewal of the heart. It's not that you're not trying hard enough. It's not that you just need to try harder or be better. Um, the problem is that you've got a different narrative that's controlling the way that you're thinking and you're operating. And rather than, and we all do this, we all have a narrative that we live by that becomes the driving force in our life. It's our mindset. Mind isn't brain. It's, mind isn't brain, it's your perspective, it's your outlook, it's your attitude, it's, it's how you think. And this is why the scriptures would say, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. It's because of where you set your mind. I'll say it this way, one of the, one of the greatest challenges in, in life is the mastery of the mind. The mastery of the mind, because it is your mindset that will be your manifestation, it's your mindset of what you think about finances that are going to be your financial manifestation. It's your relational mindset that's going to actually be the manifestation of your relationships. And you can say this in every area of your life. Physically, the way that you eat, the way that you exercise, the, your, what you are experiencing right now physically is the manifestation of your mindset of what you think about your body. There's a connection between your mindset and your manifestation. Now, um, here's... Um, I'll say it this way. Um, all of us have been in the situation, assuming that you have your driver's license, all of us have been in the situation where we're driving. Um, let's just call it Market Street, this God-forsaken stretch of road, Market Street right here. We've all been driving um, on Market Street, and we've come up to a traffic light, and as we're approaching it, it's green, and then what happens? It changes to yellow. Now, there are two kinds of people in the world. Two kinds of people in the world. All right, uh, those who are breakers, when you see that thing change to yellow, and then those who are accelerators, when that thing changes to yellow. Now, here, here, here's, what, here's what happens. The accelerators in the room, yellow means opportunity. Yeah. Yellow, yellow means like, I better get through this thing. Yellow, yellow means I got places to go, and I've got limited time, and so I better hurry up and get through it. Yeah. You know what happens? Accelerators are often married to breakers. This is, what, this is what happens. The breakers in the room, the breakers see yellow as safety. They see yellow as safety, not, not as opportunity. They think, I'm gonna, I don't want to be injured. I don't want to injure anybody else. I don't want to get a ticket. I don't want the stupid camera to take a picture of my driver's license and me get a check in the mail because of the camera. Breakers see yellow um, as safety and security, and, and so that the, the, they hit the brakes. And your spouse is like, come on, you had it. What are you doing? Like, let's go. 
Now, here's, 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 what, here's what's interesting about that situation. Your decision in that moment was a free will decision, but it was determined before you got there. Yeah, you made a free will decision, but that decision was already determined. It was already made before you ever got there. Here's why. All of us step into a vehicle. When we step into a vehicle, we step into a vehicle with a mindset. Some of us step into a vehicle, and the vehicle for us represents speed. It represents opportunity. It represents I can get to where I want to go, and I can get there quickly. And so I'm trying to swerve through the lanes. I'm trying to make every light. I'm trying to, when all the lights are green for me, that's a great day. I just, I love, I love, I love those days. Um, I kind of fall into this category. A, a vehicle for me is about speed. It's about opportunity. It's about getting where I want to go. There's another a group of people um, in the room today or online who um, a vehicle for you represents a sanctuary. It represents sanctuary, there's, especially when you're by yourself and there's no kids in the car. You have leather seats. You have heated leather seats. You have air-conditioned leather seats. Some of you even, um, you beef up your sound system and you add some tins in the back, put those in the trunk because you, that's your sink. You, you put air fresheners under the seats or you hang one of those God-forsaken trees uh, in the rearview mirror and because, because your vehicle for you is sanctuary. And when you enter that vehicle, that's your mindset. Some of you also, you, you enter a vehicle and uh, a vehicle represents something altogether other for you and your mindset in a vehicle is safety and security. It's I wanna step out of this vehicle the same way that I stepped in. And so therefore you enter maybe because of a, a past accident or something that happened to you or whatever. And so your mindset in is, a ve- is how can I stay safe in this? I'm not gonna go too fast. I'm not gonna go to this, to that. I wanna get to where I'm going safely. I don't care if it takes me a little bit longer, but my, I want. That's your mindset for your vehicle. When you approach a light and something happens, the decision was already made for you based on your mindset. Because your mindset is what you manifest. If, you, if, you're, if, if you're a speed person, you hit the gas, you accelerate. If you're a safety person, you hit the brakes. Because your mindset is what you manifest. I love what Craig Rochelle says. He says this, our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. And what we think shapes who we are. That's why your mindset will be your manifestation. So here's the main point that I have for us, and I'll end with this. To break the cycle is to break the mindset. To break the cycle is to break the mindset. You can do some behavioral modification. You can... You can get motivated and try to change your behaviors a little bit. You can get desperate and try to, try to change your behaviors for a little bit. It'll last for maybe a few days. It'll last for maybe a couple of weeks. But in order to break the cycle, you've got to break the mindset. If you're ever going to get out of anxiety at the end of the day, there are a thousand things that can help you. But at the end of the day, you have to break the mindset. If you're ever going to get out of the relational baggage that you are in and that seems like you keep getting in, the only way that you're going to get out is to break the mindset of that. To really break out of anger and an and, and anger attitude and posture towards your spouse and towards your friends and towards your coworkers and towards everybody on Market Street. The way that's going to happen is you're going to have to change your mindset. That's what the Bible calls repentance. 
Repentance is this word that's the, it's literally metanoeo. It's the, noeo is the mind and meta is transform. It's the changing of the mind. And you see this with the people of Israel. They kind of do this. They sort of do this. They kind of take some steps in the right direction, but it doesn't actually last. It says that they turn to the Lord and the Lord comes and the Lord actually delivers them, but then they turn right back into it. Rather than walk in a posture of repentance, they walk in a different posture, which I'm going to live my life however I want to live. And once I get back to safety, once I get back to good times, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And the Israelites never got out of their cycles because they never actually changed the mind and practiced true repentance. And to repent means I'm going to transform my, my mind. I'm going to change my mind on this situation. I'm going to change my mind on this person. Do you know that for every single person in the room today, I could think about you in a certain way. I could, I, we have a conversation or two. I could ask you about your past. I could ask you about your problems. And I, and I could create a narrative in which I, I would not like you. I could have a mindset. Or, or I could hear your situation. I could hear your story. And I could choose to have a positive mindset about you. Your mindset is your responsibility. Your spouse can't do that for you. Your kids can't do that for you. A pastor can't do that for you. You have to do that. And in order to break and overcome the cycles, it takes a transformation of the mind, what we choose to do in the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, oh, and like this. Anybody notice the, the baseball that I... Could you see that? Anybody see this? Baseball? Got this baseball right here. Anybody, anybody grow up playing baseball, just by the way? I'll ask Alex to join me and help us as we end this. Um, I grew up playing baseball. Um, man, this is, a, this is a great baseball. You can, you can feel the, the threads on it. Um, this is a really good, really good ball. I, me I remember the first um, baseball team that I was on. I remember playing baseball when I was a little kid, Pastor Chris. Um, my first team was the Pepsi Bears. Um, paid for, played for the the Pepsi Bears, yes, we were amazing. We were, I know, that's what you were thinking. We were, we were amazing. Um, but played uh, uh, baseball kind of all throughout, um, up into high school. And uh, now a baseball is, um, can be a, a pretty um, uh, harmful object, right? I mean, you don't necessarily want to get in the way of this thing. So like, let's, let's just say, let's say you were standing about, you know, a little past center camera in the room today about... Um, near, near kind of the back of the, the main section. And, and let's just say this ball, let's say I was able to throw it 90 miles an hour. Of course I'm able to throw this ball 90 miles an hour. Let's say a 90 mile an hour fastball was coming at you. Well, what are you going to do? Um, I mean, you, you're, you, your immediate reaction is like, I'm going to duck. I'm going to, I'm going to move. I'm going to crouch. I, I'm going to, I'm going to turn um, because this baseball, it represents danger. I mean, a 90 mile, mile an hour ball coming. I, I mean, it's like, I don't want that thing to hit me, knock out some teeth, the black eye. I mean, I, I, I want to stay in the, the way that I am. Um, now I, I didn't tell you yet, but this, this, this ball is signed by Trot Nixon, um, local Wilmington, great new Hanover high school alum. Um, would be drafted in first, first round uh, to the Boston Red Sox. He would go on and they would uh, reverse the curse and they would win a World Series uh, in Boston. And uh, he was an incredible uh, baseball player, um, local Wilmington guy, um, even, even great, great hitter. Now, when Trot Nixon sees a 90 mile an hour fastball coming at him, he doesn't see danger, he sees opportunity. He sees up. Now it's the same situation. 
Same situation. Ball coming at, at, at you. Why, 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 why would we cower and turn and duck and why would he stand there and want to hit a homer? The reason is because he has trained his mind that a 90 mile an hour fastball represents an opportunity for him. And he has changed the way that he has thought about that situation and processed that situation. And he has created a mindset that makes him feel like this is going to be an opportunity. And so he stays there and he waits for it and he hits it out of the park. Same situation, two different results, two different approaches to the situation. With every situation in your life, you have a mindset about. And your mindset is what, it's your narrative that controls you. It's your narrative that, narrative rather that drives you. It's your narrative that directs you. And for us as the people of God, we have to choose what narrative we're going to live by. The narrative of God and what, he, what he's done in our lives or we can, of, of his promise and his goodness and his mercy and what his hope is for us and our identity in him and our life in him. Nor we can choose to forget that narrative, spiritual forgetfulness, and begin to grab a narrative here, grab a narrative here, a narrative from a childhood situation, narrative from a past situation, a narrative from a hurtful relationship situation. One of the hardest things in my life is to overcome false narratives in my life where I'm not going to choose to be driven by a negative situation and what happens to me, but I'm going to choose to operate according to what God would want me to think and to do and to live. Here's the reality, church. We got the instruction of the word of God. We got the community of the people of God. And we got the power of the spirit of God, which means you can do it. You can do it. You can win. You can be victorious. You can be victorious in every situation, in every cycle. You can overcome it through the power of God in you and through hard work and through prayer and through community and through the scriptures, through the word, we can overcome it. We can win. This morning, I just felt as we were worshiping earlier this morning, I just felt like this phrase, we can win, 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 we can win. Here's how we know we can win. It's a beautiful gospel thread through the book of Judges. For every time deliverance happened for his people, God raised up a deliverer. They couldn't deliver themselves, so God would have to raise up his own deliverer. The thing that Othniel and Ehud and Deborah all have in common is that they are deliverers that point to a true and better deliverer, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the great deliverer that God raised up. That God raised up the Son of God that came for you and me to defeat our enemy of Satan, sin, hell, and the grave, and to give us victory and life in him. And every single person under the sound of my voice can have that same victory in him, can have that victory in him. And we can't save ourselves. Jesus is our deliverer. Jesus is our savior. But the scriptures would say, work out your own salvation. That's what the mindset is. You can't save yourself today, but you can work it out. Once you get saved, once you experience forgiveness, once you experience new life in Christ, then it's time to work it out. It's time to exercise that. It's time to put that into practice. That's mindfulness. And we can work it out and we can break the cycles. Amen.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful today for, um, wow, just what the, we don't have to be dominated by the world. We don't have to be dominated by the past. We don't have to be controlled by anything that's false narratives. And we can be controlled by you. We can be dominated by you. Um, we can be led by you. We can experience you. So God, we just ask that you would give us strength today to believe that we're winners in you and that we have victory in you through Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you just empower us to break some cycles, God, today and for the days ahead, we ask in Christ's name.